Welcome to What's Up With Opera. Opera is deeply rooted in history and tradition, but we're living in a post-George Floyd, Me Too world. And now artists are rethinking the art form. So whose stories are we telling and who gets to tell them? Can traditional opera be saved and should it be? And what needs to happen for it to thrive? I speak with movers and shakers who have a bold new vision. Today, my guest is the Canadian operatic soprano, Taya Kasahara. They identify as a Nikkei Canadian settler, queer, trans non-binary, and an interdisciplinary creator performer. Taya loves to sing Chocho San in Madame a Butterfly and Lady Macbeth in Verdi's Macbeth. But when they couldn't find the roles that reflected their identity in opera, they took matters into their own hands and created a show called The Queen in Me. It's a piece that explores race, gender, and sexuality through the character of the Queen of the Night from Mozart's Magic Flute. They're a graduate of the Canadian Opera Company Ensemble program and a co-founder of Amplified Opera, a company that produces new works and emphasizes equity, diversity, and inclusion. The company is currently collaborating with the Canadian Opera Company, which has named them Disruptor in Residence, and their drive to make a difference is at the front of every project. And I started by asking Taya how they first discovered opera. I saw my first opera actually on film. It was Igmar Bergman's 1975, The Magic Flute. But in Swedish, Trollflötchen. <laughs> I don't even know how to speak Swedish, so I apologize for all the Swedish speakers out there. And it was an amazing uh, production. I was at my first workshop at the UBC Summer Music Institute. I was 15 years old. This was 22 years ago. Okay, now you know how old I am. And... I had participated in this workshop thinking, oh, I'm just going to learn something more about singing because I had always loved to sing. I wanted to be in a rock band and be a rock star, but I never had that rock pop voice. I sang in the choirs. And so being in that workshop and hearing opera singers for the first time, like undergrad, master's students, semi-professionals, hobbyists, and then a few youngsters like myself, I was just blown away by the capacity of what the human voice could do. And then seeing it up close and personal, like in a in that performance, because Bergman's style was to get very close to the face, um, the audience, and the artists in that production. And it was in this old Baroque theater, one of the I think one of two operating Baroque theaters. So the sets were controlled by hydraulics, so everything was opening up like a three D storybook. And I had never seen anything like that. I maybe had seen one or two musicals, but. I think it was the the magnitude of the sound that could come out of people's bodies and being natural and like unamplified. I was just so blown away and I was like, maybe I can do this. If I can just sing that aria once, you know, that iconic Queen of the Night aria, um, I'd be happy in my life. So I was very naive and starstruck and I just went full throttle wanting to explore opera and found a voice teacher who was doing her master's degree at UBC at the time and... Then I got into UBC at 18. So I totally understand that you have that sort of pivotal experience and you go, oh, I hear all the creative juices being activated, right? I can see what this is and uh, it speaks to me and it resonates for me. Did you have any sense of what the life of an opera singer, it's my bunny ears quotation, what an opera singer would look like? And had, has it matched in any way, shape or form of what you maybe thought it was or maybe you didn't think about it? But what were your expectations for being an opera singer? I basically had none. All the information that was coming to me was through my voice teacher, through my participation at the UBC workshops, 
and then during my undergrad, observing singers, older singers, and learning from my teachers and what their experiences had been primarily in Europe as fest singers. So that was the um, only information I basically had. And that to make a career, really, you can only do that in Europe. And that you're going to be living out of a suitcase. Um, It's a lonely life. It's a hard life. There's not enough work in Canada or North America. And to really make it, you have to be focusing all of your energy and effort into singing itself, into performing, into honing that craft. So it was very unifocused in really stressing to to be the best performer that you could be in mastering languages and mastering the technique, um, stagecraft, being able to act and be that stage animal, so to speak. And how has it been different than those early sort of predictions of what it was going to be like? Well, I think it was a slow unraveling or a slow evolution in terms of being in the industry. So at 22, I joined the Canadian Opera Company in their ensemble studio um, as an artist there, and I was there for three seasons. So I was already in the thick of it, performing small roles, understanding large ones, uh, being on school tours um, every season as well. So there was never a day that I was bored or not being used in terms of practicing my craft and learning it. And then in the summer months, I would be in festivals, I would be auditioning. And then after I left the COC, it was it was participating in those audition tours, which I knew about during my undergrad, that the, this is how you do it. You audition for agents, then they set you up for house auditions, whether they're for guest or fest contracts. And then you get into a company and you and you move there and you live there. And so I did that for a few times, but I just realized that community was really important to me. And because I was also discovering my queerness, my sexuality at the time, um, and then subsequently my embracing more of my Japanese heritage, and then after that, exploring my gender, I realized that having a home base was so important to me and having one that was based in Canada, I really needed that um, with friends and community and, and family now. And that I couldn't get that being on the road or being in a country where I had to constantly be navigating um, in different languages, but also emotionally to not be able to connect in a language that I was at home in. So it made me realize, okay, I'm going to have a different kind of career. It's going to be something that I'm going to have to kind of hobble together myself. And looking at the skills that I had from opera, I went to theater and I um, discovered some really wonderful colleagues there and also started to expand my skill sets that I learned as an opera singer to be able to act and to learn how to produce as well. And I, and I realized, you know, I want to create work um, and be able to create opportunities for other artists that are struggling, struggling as well. Yeah. So this probably leads naturally into my next question, which is tell me about the production of The Queen and Me and what brought that into being. Yeah, definitely. Um, So during my time coming back from a a guest contract in Germany, I got in touch with a local company called Theatre Gargantua here in Toronto. And through their mentorship and also an artistic internship, I decided to apply for a writing, a creation residency at Buddies in Bad Times Theatre, which is um, one of the longest uh, queer running theatres in the world, actually. And 
it gave me a chance to actually explore some ideas that I had been rolling around in my head about operatic characters because I had been performing the Queen of the Night from Magic Flute very often and just feeling very limited and stifled by this very kind of thrown away two-dimensional portrayal of this character. Because in my training and my desire and my curiosity to know more about the characters that I'm performing, I um, started dreaming about what this character would be saying off stage. You know, where did she actually come from? Because we we cut the dialogue that is between Pamina and the Königin der Nacht. Uh, we cut it down very often in productions here. And so we don't really understand exactly, like in terms of how when we're producing this opera in North America, we don't really know what she's all about and why she is the way she is. And then we don't even know really what happens to her. In the score, it says versunken or versinken or something like that. And it means she sinks down. So it's like, is she dead? Does she go to hell? Is she banished? Does she just bow and slink <laughs> away? Like, So I decided to, to write a show. And what actually came about was this character coming out and stopping the opera so she can advocate for herself and for her story to be told in her words for the first time, but subsequently also advocating for all the other characters like her, all the other sopranos that have to play her throughout time and all the, all the different types of sopranos that maybe don't fit into the quote-unquote perfect soprano box, which is white and hetero and cis-normative, you know? Um, and because I don't fit into those boxes and I've tried for 30 years plus to fit into those boxes, it's been very difficult and challenging. And now I'm ready to say enough and say enough through this character and celebrate all of my otherness. So it's empowering as an artist for me to know that you found a way to do that right? Using the form of opera, an archetypal character, but you have had to create your own platform for that. You obviously have the talent and the gift and you've done all the hard work to perform the Queen of the Night anywhere you want to perform the Queen of the Night. You also can create your own work. But what is the relationship, do you think, as you move forward between your identity and opera? And is there a place for you in, for lack of a better word, traditional opera, canon, opera company, is that something you see as a possibility at this point? I sure hope so. You know, speaking to all of the producers out there, I still love the canon. I still want to sing those roles. Like, please hire me. Please call me. <laughs> you know, I don't have an agent, that kind of thing. But what I'm trying to say is that I have this love of opera because of the canon, because of these glorious melodies, these glorious harmonies, these incredible stories. And yes, they're problematic. Yes, they're racist and misogynistic and homophobic and transphobic as well. And they appropriate many cultures. But at the essence, there's still such beauty in them. And I don't want to deny that. I want to create space around the canon. And so people can understand that there are complexities and there are um, problems, yes, and to be able to come together so we can find really special ways to be able to bring these works alive again to our public, but in a way that is respectful and that really honors the cultures that they center as well. Um, so I kind of think of it like a Venn diagram, 
like I'm in the middle of my identity and my values and my desires to evolve and expand the canon and reimagine it. Yes, but there is still a part of me that loves the canon and would love to do, you know, a Lucia di Lamemur or a Zalame or, you know, maybe even sing Componist because it does say soprano in the score and the tessitura, you know, it fits. If it fits, it fits. And if you connect to that character, why not? And so, you know, this now I'm getting on a rant about Fach and going beyond Fox and stuff. So please <laughs> hold me back. Um, but... Yeah. And then I'm really also excited about uplifting new creators and new creations so we can add to the canon. So we can have like Ian Cousin's operas be performed for like centuries beyond just today, you know, for example, or even Huang Ro, this new opera that's coming to Santa Fe called M Butterfly based on the play. You know, I'm really excited about these innovators that are out there right now wanting to expand the canon with with unique stories, but also with adapting old ones too. You're listening to What's Up With Opera. If you're enjoying our conversation with Taya Kasahara, don't miss our earlier episode with baritone Devon Tynes. He grew up singing in church choirs and became an American opera star. He's also a leading force for change in the opera world. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to hit subscribe and leave us a review. You know, it's, it's easy for me to look at new work and see how identity and gender and, and how we can bring who we are as artists to the work. And so I, I, it's a sincere question. Like, do you feel that it is possible to walk fully as yourself with your identity inside this opera world in a traditional house? No. There's my short answer. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from Fa. <laughs> no, not yet, you know. And I think every experience that I am having uh, right now or that I probably will have in the future will be a compromise, to my full authentic self. But I hope it's a compromise that is less and less and less. And that I can I can have learnings and the companies can also have learnings. So I can be able to say, hey, this is what I need in advance to feel safe or to feel seen. Not or, and to feel seen. And also for the companies to understand, oh, it's not just about you know, respecting someone's pronouns. It's about so much more than that. The language that we use that is so binary in our gender expression or that privileges heteronormative cisgendered um, experiences and even white experiences. Like, I think there's still a lot of work to do, not only with artists being able to, to speak up and say, mm, this is actually what I'd prefer or this doesn't feel like the right language or this is what I need or this is what I don't need. But it's a responsibility, I think, for everyone involved to expand their mind beyond what has been centered for centuries. So I think it's going to be a long learning process. I hope to see it within my lifetime, within my career as a, as a singing opera performer, but who knows? And I think that's why when I do produce works, I can also put into practice the learnings of a producer, you know, so I can be aware to pass on that information to a larger company, say when I'm a, a guest artist, as opposed to you know, kind of just keeping that information to myself. I guess I'm speaking to another thing. It's that 
we often operate in this industry in such siloed ways. We don't share information. We don't share learnings. We don't share best practices. And I'm, and I'm wondering why is that? You know, like I see that more in the theater industry, um, kind of at a smaller independent kind of level that people are sharing resources. They're sharing contracts. They're sharing anti-harassment, anti-discrimination policies. And I'm like, this is great. Like, we're all working on this together. Why not help each other? And I think we can do that more in the opera industry. So I saw on your website, of course, the term disruptor in residence. It's such a great term. And I wonder, you know, as you talk about what it is, you know, obviously to be sharing learning, uh, making changes in the spaces you're in because you have that knowledge and you want to change the industry. What does it mean to you to be a disruptor in residence and why is that important? I think as a small, nimble company, one that works with this flat leadership, um, there's four of us, four co-founders, coming in with, with kind of like a clean slate or very little expectation that we're wanting to get something from the company. I think it's it's much more about learning and, a, and much more about making relationships. And for the duration of our residency so far, it, it has been that. It has been a very slow, a slow and thoughtful process in that we're getting to know people in the company. So mm-hmm. uh, yes, as, as a small company and with this residency, it's not about kind of like building our way up and and getting resources and getting this and getting that, like what you would typically see kind of in a, a more transactional circumstance. But I feel like we have different goals. We have different values in what we're looking for. And I think our measures of success will be, they are different and they will be different and they won't be seen the same way as I think previous relationships of different companies in residence or different artists in residence. And I really hope that every interaction and every project, whether it's big or small, that we engage with the company or that we have engaged with, it will be more about kind of the long-term learnings and the long-term change that will occur, you know, by creating those relationships and planting those seeds. So I think that's what's really exciting, that it's like, can we make change in this company by learning from how, you know, a large organization operates and how something like a nimble collective is operating and wants to operate in a way that grows, you know, under this non-for-profit sector, which is all wrapped up in a bunch of corporate tape, you know, with getting incorporated, getting a board of directors, all those kinds of things in order to level up, so to speak, how we can do that in a way that that centers the people in the company and centers the artists that we bring into the company in a different way. When you come in to make change, what's your experience in meeting pushback or people who feel alienated by it? Or what has that been like in terms of how that's been feeling? I think it's difficult to uncouple um, what this experience would have been if we didn't have a pandemic going on right now, you know, and that there has been a lot of change in terms of uh, positions in the company. We're doing everything remotely. We're doing everything via email, via Zoom, via phone call. So we never get to see people in person. And that's been really tough. And to also know that there are people in the company that have so much on their shoulders, so much responsibility, and that things take time. And because it's such a large company, they have to get approval from many different people, many different departments. So 
things move much slower there, but they also have so much more at stake, you know, with their budget, with their patrons, with their donors, with their board, and that that has been ingrained for so long. And the way we operate is very flexible. It's very um, adaptive, especially to the moment and especially to our our needs as people, you know, if we're going through a rough time because of the the mental and emotional and physical stress that we're all that's all being weighing on us right now. So we have that ability as a company of four people to be able to adapt and change things. But I'm really understanding that the largest producer of opera in Canada and one of the largest in North America doesn't have that capability. So I think patience has been a big thing and also just respect for the amount of work and the, and the responsibility on these, on these people who run this company. Yeah, I often think about it as like, um, you've been out to the West Coast many times, I know. Are you from here? Oh, yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's like trying to move a BC ferry. And <laughs> it's one thing if you're in like a small craft and, the, and they honk the horn, it's like the little craft should move because the big boat, that's going to be exactly. more difficult. <laughs> and I do, oh my goodness, <laughs> I have ship metaphors as well. You know, the COC is a giant ship. We're a little speedboat right now amplified opera you know we can we can deke around and I feel like even one degree of changing the course does a lot but it also requires a lot to move that ship Well, we've talked about authenticity and showing up as your whole self. Most times as opera singers, we're asked to go into rehearsal, be good colleagues, inhabit the music. And I want to ask you, what's that feel like to be able to show up as your full self right now in your work? Mm, I think it feels great. I think that's why I keep making projects on my own these days. <laughs> and also, you know, the, just with the climate that we're in, it's easier to do your own thing right now. And it's also very scary. It's very scary to get to know yourself if you haven't done that work. And then as an artist and creating something and then putting it out there to share with people. That's like another level of scariness. And so I often am always in dialogue with myself and, and asking myself questions like, what exactly am I doing with creating this and sharing this? Like, what is the point? You know, who do I want to listen? Who do I want to be in dialogue with this art those are really big questions. And I feel like being able to be investigating these large philosophical, social questions is what really pulls me in to keep creating. As you're creating this kind of work, and you're really at the forefront of a lot of this, how do you think this is going to shift or change our opera world? I really hope that these large companies that are producers of the canon can see the value in centering artists' truths, you know, whether that's creating a residency program 
for someone just to explore their repertoire or to go beyond it or to explore a canonical composer or a theme um, by using works in the canon. So we can encourage more artistic agency, I think, especially with performers who are so used to interpreting and just doing what they're told, but also to encourage that every artist, you know, they are human. They have choice, they have agency, and they can explore different facets of their of their artistry and of the canon or create their own works um, that are in conversation with canonical works as well. You know, so whether this is residencies, whether this is putting more funds and resources into new commissions, into really uplifting new composers and librettists, and even creative teams of people who are creating opera in an unconventional, decolonized, unhierarchical way. You know, there's so much that's going on in dance and in theater in terms of devised creation that it would be really exciting to be able to bring those ideologies and practices into opera, into opera making. So we can expand the definition of opera and hopefully, yeah, just keep opening that umbrella, you know, of opera and that more shoots can come off and that it can it can carry more and also I hope that we shift as an industry our mindset in like what is good opera or what is legitimate opera or opera singing you know like I spend hours a week honing my craft still right and I when I want to have that operatic technique but then I also realize okay this style of singing really centers European languages, you know, and those vowels. And then when you're singing something in a language that doesn't necessarily match up, it's like, okay, do I sacrifice my operatic technique or do I sacrifice the language that I'm singing in, the other language? And so I think there needs to be, you know, many conversations there to be able to be like, okay, well, this can still be opera. You know, we call we call musicals like those rock operas operas and I'm like okay but are they opera you know they have a story there's music there's acting there's singing it's not operatic singing but it's singing like so and then to recognize that operatic uh genres occur in so many cultures so why not uplift them why not see the largest producers of opera especially in North America give platform to to other types of quote-unquote opera. I'm doing the bunny ears right now. <laughs> <laughs> like, so our audiences can can be exposed to more and to, to open our eyes to other cultures as well and other expressions and the beauty of those unique expressions because it's not lesser than, it's just different. And I think that's wonderful. I love that you're sort of talking about how we define opera and what opera is. Indie opera, we're seeing a lot of indie opera companies with young and upcoming artists because they don't see themselves reflected in companies and possibilities creating those spaces. But are we just marginalizing if we say, well, queer opera lives over here, right? Or people with disabilities, that opera lives over there. Or that if it doesn't come from that Eurocentric, I'm going to sing it in French, German, Italian, it now lives over here. Are we letting big opera companies off the hook when we sort of let marginalized companies with very small production budgets have to carry all the weight of this work? And is this something you'd like to see change in? Definitely, I want to see change. Um, 
I'm not letting any big opera company off the hook. Just to make the record clear, um, I really think these big opera companies need to look towards the indie opera community, whether it's in Canada, North America, or in Europe or elsewhere, and to see what they're creating. Like, create relationships with them. Why not do a co-production? You know, why not house them for a residency for a few years? Why not commission them? Because these indie companies and these indie opera artists and producers have a network of so many up and coming people and people who have been working in the industry, but are just not recognized or seen by the large producers. So really, it's like these indie companies have done the work, you know, and it, it's, it, it would be a tremendous opportunity for those large companies just to be like, hey, like, how's it going? What are you what are you doing over there? Like, can we help with anything? And to really come into these relationships from a place of listening, from a place of wanting to learn, as opposed to being like, no, you have to do it our way or no, we can't do that or this red tape or that red tape. But there is a tremendous learning opportunity. And also, I really feel like we need to be careful with these large companies to not tokenize these small companies or their works for being like, okay, yep, we're hitting it for Black History Month. Oh, yep, we're hitting it for Asian History Month. Oh, yep, we're hitting it for Indigenous History Month. You know, all of these kind of like important holidays, which are very important. And we need to have more recognition and more public awareness of that. But to also like program a black opera or a black centered production that is outside of Black History Month or to program a queer centered whatever opera outside of June. Like, why does it always have to be in June? And I get that it's it's easy to kind of be like, okay, well, let's jump on this trend or this trend and do that. But that I think that is the goal is to see these equity seeking stories enter the main the main stages. And to be a part of the repertory, as repertory, I can't say that word, part of the repertoire, (laughs) you know, as opposed to just being kind of a one-off or to be on a side stage or an auxiliary stage or like a community engagement thing. But it has to start there. That's also my point. It has to start somewhere. And then hopefully it will also just be part of, you know, your Barber of Seville's and your Nabucco's. I don't know. I'm just thinking of random operas right now. I know we don't know do I love the I know Nabucco. we don't do Nabucco I often. That. I don't know why that came to my mind. Your fall staff. There we go. Something like that. There we go. Well, along this line, um, it just sort of also occurs to me that we are asking obviously people from those communities to do a large amount of the heavy lifting of this. And I'm wondering for in your own experience, what's the weight that comes with that to be the person that has to be pushing that? agenda all the time. What is the weight weight of that? The weight is tremendous. It is relentless. It is what we live every day, even outside of the professional sphere or on the emails or in the meetings or on the stage or in the rehearsal room. We're living it constantly 24-7. So it's a lot, you know, and sometimes you won't be your best self in a room or sometimes you won't get back to an email on time because of the the relentlessness of it all, you know? And so I think it's when people are not in that experience or in that identity, it's very difficult to recognize how much stamina and resilience is needed in order to, quote unquote, succeed alongside the other colleagues who are privileged. And I say this word not to offend, but to also just point out that the world is created for 
cis, white, heteronormative folks. So that's the privilege that I'm talking about. And I'm not saying it needs to be recognized, you know, if there is extra weight or for other folks who have the capacity to do the work for them or to ask, hey, what can I take off your plate or what can I do? What, how can we do this better? And to also train into themselves um, to have the foresight to be able to not have spaces that will create harm over and over again. So it's like, let's learn from the mistakes. Let's learn from the hurt and try to heal from that and then do better the next time. It's such a challenge for opera as they try to figure it out. I mean, I remember many, many years ago when the first wave of it was important to cast an Asian singer as Madame Butterfly, you know, doing a show with um, a singer for whom that was not their voice type. They barely had enough voice to finish that, but that was sort of at the moment, that was the thing to do. And so every singer wants to succeed, wants to earn a living, singer takes the gig, just makes it to the end of the show. And I look sometimes now at how casting goes and wondering, you know, is this sort of the next pitfall for us is that we'll tokenize and we'll pigeonhole people from certain backgrounds. Everyone will declare their identity, who they are, where they're from, and we'll just restream them back into those places and we won't see casting really change. Mm-hmm. And I still think we see it. You know, I I still think it's happening kind of with, without thought. It's like, oh, well... It's this racialized role, so we need to make sure we get someone from that race or at least adjacent to it, you know? But I'm like, <laughs> yeah. how that doesn't actually really help if even if you're adjacent or, you know, before it was like, oh, you pass, you pass as this ethnicity without any care, you know? But now it's like, okay, adjacent identities or, or ethnicities. So it is still quite tokenizing. I, I really do agree. Um, and I think we still need to do more. And I think there needs to be more conversations like around, should we continue to program these operas? Or if we're going to program them, how are we going to do it in a way that isn't going to re-harm or harm our audiences who are connected to this opera, say, with their, their cultural identities? Or do we make new operas? You know, this all of these conversations that are happening, like they all affect one another. And I don't think we can solve solve the race problem or solve the gender problem, you know, with just casting people appropriately based on their their ethnic background. Like it's it's really complicated and it's really frustrating. And sometimes the work is being done internally and we see great work happening, say, with a, with a creative team and with the artists, but we don't see it reflected publicly. So it's like the public or the audience doesn't know that there is work going on in terms of to make it more um, anti-oppressive and anti-racist, you know, and it just kind of perpetuates again that same, those same stories that are problematic, that are in our canon. And just because, yes, this music is beautiful, you know, that's not enough. It's not enough anymore. Well, this leads me to my final question, which of course is uh, based on a fear perspective uh, that big companies are facing. Money comes from the people who donate, the people who buy the tickets. But the remark that we'll hear is, if we change opera, no one's going to come, right? Everyone's going to leave. If I can't see Butterfly, I'm not coming back. And um, what are your thoughts about that response? It's a little bit disappointing because I, it's not going to be black and white like that, you know, and we can't have that attitude towards it either. This very like this or that either or kind of mentality. I think many ways forward, 
are to do many things. And by doing those many things, we are going to make mistakes. But there are learnings from that. And maybe it's also time. You know, opera has been around for 400 plus years. Maybe it's time to let a few things go. Like we don't perform all the operas that ever been created all the time, right? Like what's what's in the top 10 or the top 20 or 50 of the canon is are those operas. Let's put more resources and energy into new operas and new artists. Like that is also very exciting, you know? And we have all this technology as well now to share these these operas, to make really great high quality videos and recordings. And why not? You know, as opposed to just let's re-record this one and put it up. Which is great too, but let's just have some thought and care around that also. Yeah. Taya Kasahara is a multidisciplinary creator and performer. What's Up With Opera is a podcast by Pacific Opera Victoria. It's produced by me, Rebecca Haas, along with Denise Ball and Jennifer Van Evra. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, write us a review, and share. And join me for our next episode when I'll talk with Canadian Métis composer Ian Cusson about the intersection between Western and Indigenous cultures and what it is to be Métis in the traditional world of opera. Opera.